Hello, fashionistas. Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm often struck when I'm reading Western medieval sources how much attention they give to the details of the clothing worn by the protagonist in the stories. The color, texture, cut, design, fabric, and insignia are often spelled out in such extraordinary detail. This mattered very much to the people who ruled uh, Western medieval Europe. And it's from these kinds of sources that we get the same kind of attention to clothing that you find, for example, in uh, George Martin's uh, Game of Thrones. Now, the same was obviously true in Byzantium as well, but we just don't have those kinds of sources. (laughs) Uh, Byzantine narrative sources rarely give us this kind of detail. And so to be frank about it, we often don't know what our subjects were wearing at any particular time. Now, you might have an image in your mind, kind of like a platonic ideal form of Byzantine dress, and that's usually some you know, image of an emperor wearing his Sunday best. In fact, it's not even the Sunday best. What you imagine emperors as wearing uh, from like mosaics and manuscript illuminations and those kinds of things, those are... Um, outfits that they wore a few times a year only. Uh, We don't know what they wore the rest of the year. And we certainly don't even know what most people were wearing most of the time, at least not in any detail. By the way, if you want to see a spectacular and fantastic image of the modern platonic form of Byzantine dress, uh, Google Dolce Gabbana Byzantine Collection you'll see. It's fantastical in both senses of the word. So how do we go about solving this problem? How do we figure out what Byzantine people wore? Uh, Well, there are a number of approaches, and each one takes us down a separate rabbit hole that requires very different kinds of technical skills and specializations. So first we have surviving specimens of Byzantine clothing. And These are very, very few. There's some silks and there's some fabrics that survive from uh, late antique Egypt. And that's kind of it. Um, And their preservation and maintenance and study is a very specialized uh, discipline. Then we have a whole bunch of textual references. These are stray references. So we rarely get narratives that describe what someone was wearing from head to toe, and explain what those garments are. Uh, They're usually, you know, some well-known term referring to some type of garment, and we don't know exactly what it was, perhaps. Um, Or they're referring to the most distinctive uh, item of apparel that someone was wearing in a specific context. So understanding or decoding those textual references requires quite a bit of philological detective work. And there's often quite a bit of uncertainty that surrounds the nature of those items, uh, even once we've done that detective work. It's not quite as bad as this, but think of it this way. Like, suppose we have a bunch of references in, you know, medieval Greek texts to different types of cheese. 
And even assuming that those references form a stable system, like this type of cheese and that type of cheese, yeah, good luck trying to figure out what that actually was in practice. Like if you put it on a table in front of you or tasted it, what it would be like. And third, we have visual representations of dress uh, in mosaics and in church paintings and in manuscript illuminations. And this is probably our best main source for dress, though it has all kinds of problems too. So there is the problem that many scenes in manuscripts are depicting events in the distant past in the Bible or you know antiquity. Um, they're often very stylized. There are certain conventions that um, adhere to particular individuals, and so and those conventions might not necessarily reflect, you know, historical so social reality, what people actually wore. There is the problem of the sort of Sunday best effect, like those images of emperors that I mentioned. Though in their case, it's mostly like Easter best. And so pretty soon you've gone down another rabbit hole, which is that of art history and you know, talking about the conventions and the modes and orders of visual representations in different uh, materials, in different contexts in Byzantium, and that's, that has to be done. It's necessary work. And at the end, it's still difficult to put it all together and form a picture of daily life, you know, from those images, from the references in the text, from surviving materials. So it's very, very hard work. And there is a small number of people who have been trying to put this together. And we are all very, very grateful to them. And two of them are my guests today. One is Betsy Williams, a curator of fascinating things at uh, the Dumbarton Oaks um, collection in Washington, D.C. Uh, listeners of this podcast have met her before, I think in episode 47. And joining us also is Jen Ball, a professor at City University of New York, who has written the most accessible sort of gateway book to the issue of Byzantine dress. Uh, it's called Byzantine Dress. You'll find a full um, citation in the podcast episode description. And I thought that Jen and Betsy would be an ideal combination to discuss these problems that we face when we try to understand what our subjects wore. And a special shout out to Maria Parania, professor at University of Cyprus, who has also done extraordinary work uh, on this problem, especially from the art historical side. Uh, her books are also sort of fundamental for that field. And once again, uh, thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting uh, these episodes. Uh, so here then is my discussion with uh, Betsy and Jen. Hello, Jen. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. And Betsy, welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me back. So as we all know from TV and the movies, there's a point in the history of every culture where everybody just decides that they're going to wear the same thing, <laughs> which makes them easily identifiable. And eventually from Star Trek, we know that entire planets do this. And so they all have the kind of national or planet uniform. Uh, and, you know, this is the way in which many ancient cultures are represented. You know, we know Greeks and Romans wore togas and, I don't know, medieval Arabs wore turbans. And this is sort of a shorthand that we use to identify them. I suppose if you asked any person, you know, what did Byzantines wear? The first image that would pop into their mind, whether they wanted to or not, would be some, you know, em emperor, Justinian and Theodora in Ravenna, right? Something like that. 
Now, obviously, this had nothing to do with how most people dressed, uh, right? In fact, I suspect it had very little to do with how the emperors dressed most of the time. So, so Jen, why don't we start with some, uh, just setting the scene here. Uh, from what sources do we know how most people in Byzantium dressed? And I'll just sort of qualify here that by dress, we mean all kinds of apparel and accessories, including jewelry and hats and everything, right? Everything that you might wear. Uh, so, yeah, how do we know about that? Uh, I, we really have to triangulate sources because we have no complete set of garments, except in a few very rare cases. So we do have... Uh, fragments mostly of textiles, occasionally a complete garment, like a tunic. But we have lots of descriptions of dress and histories and saints' lives that can be, even if they're biased, quite helpful in understanding how people thought about what they wore. And we also have... Um, representations in art, which of course also are biased. Usually only elites are represented uh, or when non-elites are represented, it's for the elite audience to consume. So their dress is skewed. But I think when we pull all of these sources together, we can start to see the variety of actual clothing and uh, also what they might have looked like in real life somewhat, uh, you know, really through a lot of layers. It's a very mediated look. Yeah, and you know, for jewelry, we benefit from much more archeological evidence. So uh, for textiles or from some of the, uh, you know, hats or socks or shoes um, that are tend to be made of organic materials, those, those don't survive as well. But jewelry, bronze, silver, gold um, survives better. So you have excavated jewelry, archeological jewelry, jewelry today in museum collections. And I think in addition to, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, Jen was describing the triangulation of the sources, we also have the fact that so much of dress is ephemeral, right? Like it's an ephemeral, practice. And so often the day-to-day -day practices would not have been written down. And so that creates a sort of bias that Jen was describing and the evidence toward uh, elite practice of who was, you know, painted wearing uh, clothes and jewelry and accessories or, or what did the sources, the written sources have to say. So, so this is a real challenge. Right. And our audience will be familiar with images um, that, you know, people, patrons put up of themselves. Um, yeah, I mentioned Justinian, obviously, but also from the later Byzantine period, we have all of these funerary contexts, um, also images and manuscripts, right, where mostly secular officials, but also, uh, you know, monks and other monastics are, are, are depicted. So is it fair to assume that the way they're depicted there is either um, some sort of stylized uh, dress that they wouldn't have been wearing most of the time, but is kind of emblematic of the image of themselves that they wanted to convey, right? Or stylized according to certain conventions of representation. But again, not a sure guide to um, sort of daily life situations. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think that's a, I like the word stylized here. That's a good way to think about it. Um, so depictions often will tell us attitudes towards dress or it will tell us a type hmm. uh, without necessarily being 100% accurate. I think monks really present a great example because we see monks stereotyped in the drab uh, clothes or sometimes tattered, depending on who exactly is being depicted. But we know, for example, from uh, sources, there are these great letters uh, that Shenouda wrote, for example, about uh, wanting his um, cloak to be specifically ornamented with red tassels. That is not something that comes to mind when we think about monastic dress, but mm -hmm. He was the leader, the ornament had a lot of status for him, and he was extremely concerned about it. He also references in another letter not wanting to wear something that uh, moths have, had gotten and it had a little hole in it. So I think we can get a lot of um, textural detail from things like that and see variety. Uh, set against the stereotypes that are usually in images. Yeah. You know, it raises it raises to my mind this question of how we interpret dress from the past as well. So we can think about reading dressed dresses in iconography. So by that we mean that the dress is kind of symbol uh, symbol or emblematic of a certain group. Um, but you can also think about dress as a practice. So this is a kind of a different way of thinking about dress as part of either a bodily experience. Um, and so this is another uh, layer to this that I think is uh, useful to think about. And then, you know, we have this question of the group dress, right? Like what we're describing here is a kind of uniform or, or um something representing the office versus an individual garment or individual dress. And so this is another uh, methodological uh, question for us to think through when we approach the sources. Yes. Yeah, so for example, in, Jen, in your book, you have separate sections dealing with, you know, what for lack of a better term, we can call a uniform that is how soldiers and monks and clergy are represented when they're, you know, dressed in a way that indicates their, uh, you know, professional group, let's say, and their status within that group. Uh, so that tends to bracket off quite a lot of evidence, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's useful in that it tells us um, maybe what the values were of a particular group. Why um, do we think, for example, that you know, courtiers uh, should be wearing a lots of ornamented dress and what their insignia might um, tell us, especially when we look at them as a group or why certain people cover their heads and other people don't. Um, but yeah, it leaves out huge groups of people, people I think often who live outside of cities, it leaves off people who are not in a profession, but maybe work outside, leaves off um, certainly the very broad category of the poor, which I don't, I think could be nuanced quite a bit, you know? So yeah, it's, um, it's a problem if you only look at representation, which is often what we have. 
Yeah, that's the impression that I get uh, reading through a lot of the scholarship on dress, uh, which is that, you know, once you start bracketing off highly stylized images and then sort of professional, um, you know, attire, and you try to get to the more sort of, you know, material world questions of what did most people wear most of the time, it's very difficult methodologically. I mean, and you, yeah. you have to get archaeology and you know, material culture, but also the, all these stray references and texts. And you try to understand, like, what does this mean? And, uh, you know, how far can we push that evidence? And so, yeah, the, the domain of Byzantine dress appears to be something that requires a, a lot of work and careful sifting through the evidence. There are um, certain garments that we can tell, for example, right, archaeological finds are um, overwhelmingly of tunics that are unearthed. And even though the Byzantines may have been wearing these and a lot of other cultures and distinguished them in different ways um, and may have actually had a variety of names for different types of tunics, I think we can see that that's a garment that everybody wore. Um, or a clamus or a cloak, right, is also something that was kind of a standard professional garment. Um, and we see tons and tons of references to it. And there may have been variety if you were up close and looking at things. But uh, I think there are certain things we can see that everybody wore, even if um, we don't have those kinds of details that you're talking about. Yeah, you know, Anthony, I think uh, the archaeological evidence can be very valuable because it pinpoints a group, groupings of objects or, um, you know, the fine spot can be very meaningful. It can help us to understand what people wore, how they wore it. At the same time, often the archaeological concept uh, excuse me, archaeological context is very constructed, is highly artificial. Yeah. So what that means is that we're seeing a very uh, curated grouping of objects. And so with jewelry, for example, often you'll find hordes of jewelry kept together. It tells us nothing about how the jewelry was worn. It tells us everything about how the jewelry was understood as personal wealth. Mm. as like the bank account of the family, right? And so, you know, adding another wrinkle to the challenges of working with dress is understanding that even when we do have data, the data may not answer the questions we're bringing to it. Yeah, I, it, I find this especially frustrating in the early Byzantine period with belt buckles, because often that's the only part that survives, along with the skeleton maybe. and and. It's weird how, especially in the 20th century, I don't know that this is still done, at least, I mean, it shouldn't be, is how the belt buckles are ethnicized and like this is an Avar belt buckle or a Slavic belt buckle. So this person must be a, you know, and, and histories are written based on these belt buckles. And it's like, I have Italian shoes somewhere. I mean, that doesn't, that I, anyway, um, I think for the most part, we've gotten past that. But um, switching from ethnicity to gender. So let me ask, how gendered was Byzantine clothing? Do we know? So for example, were imperial clothes or monastic clothes gendered in a way such that you could, like from a distance, just seeing what someone is wearing, you know, 
form an assumption about, oh, that that's a man, that's a woman. Um, wh what was the extent to which clothing was gendered? I think that clothing was gendered in that uh, the Byzantine people walking around would not confuse, um, you know, a monk and a nun. I think for us, it's very hard and uh, because we can't necessarily see the differences that they might have seen. Tunics are a great example. They're all very oversized, no matter who wore them. There wasn't, uh, it, so it's hard to tell um, if it was cut for a woman or a man, but it does seem like women um, wore them longer for reasons of modesty. Uh, the belting might have been different for um, men than women. So, and we know from textual sources that they're concerned with gender and that they recognize right uh, and distinguish all the time that a garment is male or female gendered in some sense um, but I have trouble um, always identifying what those particulars are because you know just like we today wear jeans and a shirt men mm. will wear that women will wear that and it on the face of it is hard to distinguish but we don't usually have any trouble telling mm. uh which you know i think that with the jewelry we have to work past our gendered expectations of who wears jewelry and how today yes um right so we tend to assume that and i have done this myself that women were wearing the jewelry yeah. Um, and of course, if we look at the representations, like visual representations, we can see women wearing very fancy earrings or fancy necklaces or bracelets. Uh, you know, my favorite textual sources are from the Cairo Geniza. So this is a trove of documents that was found in a synagogue in Fatimid, Egypt. And there are women's dowries that list all the textiles they owned, all the jewelry they owned. So we have a lot of textual evidence, visual evidence showing how women own jewelry, that this was really there, not just for beautification, but also for personal wealth. And we today expect women to wear jewelry. And as a result, the whole, there's, I think, a real a dearth of research or, or scholarship on what kind of jewelry men wore. And, and this is something that really fascinates me because when we look at, again, the archaeological evidence, we do find men with uh, earrings, for example, you mentioned the belt buckles, you know, so, so this is an area where, and, and I think it's already come through in our conversation so far, Jen and I spend a lot of time working through the present to get at the past and working through how our, our kind of our concepts and our frameworks may or may not apply uh, to past practice. So this is really important. And then, you know, I'd also say that it's, and Anthony, maybe you've had this with your own texts. I think often the texts have a rhetoric of gender of their own. So that even when oh, yeah. the texts are described, right, when the texts are describing gendered dress, we're always questioning what's the kind of motivation or the intent behind this gendering of dress practice. Mm -hmm. So the example that comes to my mind is this very 
a long tradition of Persianate dress being made effeminate, right, in the Roman sources, late Roman and, and Byzantine sources. So thinking about how, you know, oh, those Persians who are wearing silk, right, and that's effeminate Persians wearing trousers um, that continues even in the Islamic texts, right? So these are uh, sources that we are always sort of thinking about what is the rhetoric behind this gendering of dress in the in the textual sources as well. Yeah, that's great what you said about men wearing jewelry. And let's not forget that in some respects, the imperial crown was basically a piece of jewelry. Um, it, in fact, it kind of started out that way when Constantine began to put gems in the diadem. Uh, and I'll never forget Eusebius' description of Constantine at the Council of Nicaea. And he comes in, right? And he's resplendent and he's just covered in gems and it must be shining and all of this like that was the you know put gems wherever you can um and eusebius calls him i think an angel of god based on that uh, description and there's no question about constantine's masculinity there um and i i show my students the uh louis the 14th you know the famous painting because of the high heels so my understanding is that high heels were originally like for men this was and and he's, you know, he's kind of um, showcasing his thighs, like really, like Louis the Fourteenth is like, look at my thighs, and and he's wearing the high heeled shoes to prop up his legs because that's apparently what he was proud of. I, I don't know, and and the big wig and everything. And it's like, yeah, this is the the image of masculinity. It, it's amazing. Anyway, emperors wore jewelry throughout the Byzantine millennium. Essentially, right, the imperial insignia for men or women is jewelry. I mean, it's a, a jeweled stole, even though it is worn, pulled over the head, probably, or, you know, kind of wrapped. But the crown, as you mentioned, um, also the jeweled collar, you know, I think we should think of these. Betsy, you tell me, but shouldn't we think of these as jewelry, really? You know, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting question, right? Um, and this gets at how do we define what is jewelry? How do we define what counts as jewelry? And I'm, I've been working at Dumbart Notes, we have a, an extensive pre-Columbian collection. And the pre-Columbian curator and I have been thinking about doing an exhibition on on jewelry. And when I, when I talked about this topic with him, he said, well, in the pre-Columbian world, we don't call it jewelry. We call it ornament, personal ornament, personal adornment. So I think that jewelry is, again, one of these examples where the, the category itself can, as you begin to pick at it, becomes less, less clear. And it makes me think about the constructed nature of even the line of questioning, where I, where I distinguish jewelry from anything related to dress, right? Um, and it gets at an interesting question at how, and this is why it's so great that Jen and I are talking together on this podcast, that the jewelry specialists tend to be, jewelry specialists, air quotes, tend to be metalwork specialists, and the dress specialists tend to be textile specialists. And this, these, each of these has their own tradition of scholarship and training to learn how to identify weave structure versus to learn how to identify metalworking techniques. So there's, I think, a lot of room in the, re in the scholarship to do more collab excuse me, collaborative work that we get together and, and talk uh, about what we see in the, in, the, in the sources. So could you say a little bit more about 
why this disciplinary divide has emerged? I mean, surely there are aspects of training. I mean, you mentioned them, um, but is that it? Um, or do these materials or the interest in these materials just come from very different traditions of scholarship or, or, or in, the, in the deep past, the prehistory of our field, they, there must have been some weird arrangement whereby these materials were studied differently. And we've just kind of inherited that passively. Uh, but I'm, I'm just making that up. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but, but is that the case? Yeah, um, I think that part of the issue, you know, the training is certainly um, part of the issue. I think that even the conditions of preservation today create this divide. So in the museum, um, thinking about displaying jewelry, jewelry is very stable. It's made of metal. Uh, it can be on view for a long time. So we can leave mm. it out in the galleries, right? It's often, at least at Dumbarton Oaks and in other institutions, it's stored with objects. So it's stored in what we call object storage. Textiles, in contrast, are extremely fragile. So they can only be on view for short periods of time. They have to be rotated. They have different climate needs. So they are stored in separate parts of the storage. They're in a different room at Dumbarton Oaks entirely and at the Met as well. They have their own department. Um, so physically, even they're separated in the museum spaces. And I wonder the degree to which that separation today has influenced how those these areas of uh, specialization are studied and why we don't often bring these pieces together. And Jen, I don't know if you, you know, you encountered this problem, I think many times, in fact. Yeah, actually, I was just, it was occurring to me when you were talking that there's also historically textiles and clothing, at least, were studied primarily by women. It's very recent that we have any um, men who have entered this world in terms of scholars. And with jewelry, I think it's a little different because metalworking is something that's in other types of objects. And so we do have mm -hmm. um, scholars of both genders who are or of all genders who are looking at um, metal objects, including jewelry. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think historically, textiles and dress have been more marginalized uh, from the beginning. And so there's that separation. It's definitely changing. Um, and there's a lot of activity, I think, in the study of textiles and dress now. But if we looked at the early 20th century, I don't think that would be as much the case. I think also textiles are a little harder for people to get into because they're often fragmentary and uh, the scholarship often focuses on the technical aspects that are sometimes yes. hard, like structural, we weave structure or structural issues. Mm. Whereas the jewelry, you know, we've been talking about the imperial insignia. It's almost like so closely associated with the Byzantine aesthetic that it sort of immediately comes to mind as something that the popular imagination is really captivated by. Uh, they're gemstones, it's gold, it's just, and they're often surviving complete 
they're more or less complete. So just visually, they're easier for people to latch onto, I think, as well. Um, and I find it really fascinating if there's been, you know, in hike fashion, several collections that have been dedicated to Byzantine mm -hmm. uh, style. And I'm thinking of the Paris Byzantine ex uh, exhibition, excuse me, uh, show or collection that Karl Lagerfeld put out for Chanel about 10 years ago, I guess, at this point. And, you know, Google, the audience can Google that and see the fabulous dresses. But a part of that fashion show was that Karl Lagerfeld actually commissioned all of these Parisian ateliers to recreate Byzantine jewelry. So it was not just the style from the mosaics or the re recreating the clamus like we saw in the, on the fashion on the runway. Um, but he also actually developed an entire collection of, of jewelry, replica jewelry. So again, I think it's just something that in the popular mindset is just easy to latch onto in a way that textiles are a little bit harder, harder sell. Oh yeah. I frequently come across, uh, you know, Byzantine style jewelry for sale in catalogs and like, you know, at the back of archeology span magazine and things like this, like they're always selling, you know, Byzantine gold, this and Byzantine gold, that. Um, I'm wondering also whether the, the, so the study of these two uh, different materials comes from different matrices in the sense that you know, jewelry was probably, you know, more associated with museum studies and comes, you know, in a distant past from like, you know, cabinets of curiosities or antiquarianism, that coins, you know, that, that, that kind of area, whereas the study of, I mean, dress in the sense of textiles or what, what people are wearing in terms of cloth is more, I think more art historians work on that because you have to work through all of the images and manuscripts and churches and also supplement that with texts. And so that's less of a museum studies kind of, so, so is it possible that that kind of distinction has perpetuated this divide? Yeah, that's an interesting question. To my mind, that gets me thinking about Je and Jen worked on this in her book, and, and I found this so inspirational in her book, what we expect of pre-modern dress in general. So the idea that from the outside looking in, this idea of fashion for pre-modern dress was sort of anathema. It was just not uh, possible to even frame that. And Jen, you did such a beautiful job in your book to, to dismantle that. And I think that thinking about how this participates, not just in Byzantine art history, but fashion studies more generally is really important to bring out. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So what is the problem in talking about fashion in Byzantium? The main problem comes from the general history of fashion having this beginning point in Western Europe in the courts of Burgundy, mostly the Burgundian court, and also in Italy. And um, it's where we see a lot of uh, change and we see um, a very clear fashion system where courtiers and you know, other elites are commissioning clothes to be made. Um, and we have a lot of written records to support this in addition to portraits made and often the clothing itself 
surviving. And we can, if you think of fashion as really being um, about desire and the desire to look a certain way, we can see that desire very clearly. Um, and all sorts of dress historians have said um, that prior to that moment, clothes were really utilitarian, which is, I think, a sort of ludicrous idea um, that people would only dress to keep warm or protect from the sun or whatever, and then suddenly uh, change <laughs> at a moment um, to become interested in dress as an expression. Uh, and I think we can clearly see, but it's harder to see those changes over time, right? They are looks to be more conservative, change happens slowly. And so people don't interpret that as fashion as a result. Um, because we see that people wore tunics from the Roman Empire up to, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the end of the Byzantine Empire, people say, well, that's not really fashion, uh, because it's not changing uh, in the way that moderns expect. And I think, Jen, and for, for me, this was such an important point in my own work in the jewelry, because I was very frustrated when I began my research that people talked about jewelry as if it did not change. And in fact, when I, when I read Jen's book and thought about how jewelry and textiles were part of the same ensembles, of course, the jewelry would also change. And when I looked then at the archeological evidence, I could see changes in objects, like certain types of, or, or forms of jewelry would become more popular and then fade away. Um, for example, Arabic inscribed jewelry. There's a, a moment in the 10th, 11th century where there are all these finds of uh, enamel pieces that have Arabic on them or um, names inscribed on them. And so that to me was a fashion choice, right? That was coming through in the archeological evidence that supported what we see in the textual sources that supported what we see uh, in uh, the uh, in grave good finds in Egypt, where we see the development of a taste for inscribed uh, mm -hmm. garments, right? Like you see that mm -hmm. in um, the, as part of diplomatic gifting between the, uh, the Islamic and Byzantine courts, for example. So this became really interesting to me to see, to see that uh, the jewelry could also be used to decipher this change in fashion. Mm -hmm. And it became really fascinating to me also thinking about how jewelry was not normally talked about that way because so much of the research focused on production and identifying production that the uses of jewelry were not, as part of dress, were not really um, discussed. And then it also got me thinking about how fashion flows in around the Mediterranean, that it was not necessarily coming out of Constantinople to the provinces, but as Jen really nicely showed in her book, and as the jewelry evidence, archaeological evidence showed more of a flow in different directions. So this really nuances how we understand these ephemeral practices that again, are not going to be recorded in official texts. Right. Though sometimes they are. I mean, you, you do sometimes find texts where, you know, the author is concerned about, you know, changes of style at the court or you know, wherever. 
Um, and it's, you know, especially from the 14th century, which I'm working on now. I mean, there's these famous, you know, statements by Grigoras about hats and, uh, and, and yeah. so forth. Um, so I've come across this statement about, you know, no fashion before the, I don't know, 15th century, you name your period or whenever. And I want to assume that those are based on something more substantive than just, well, you know, something that we think important today must have started in Western Europe, which, which is basically how a lot of these claims are made, right? Like the state begins in Europe in the 16th century, right? Or, you know, name your concept. Uh, religion. Religion is an invention of the Reformation or the Enlightenment or whatever, right? And so, like, have there been theories of fashion which stipulate more stringent requirements? Like, maybe we don't have to accept those requirements, but at least that an effort has been made, such as, for example, that you can't talk about fashion unless there's some kind of mass production that appeals to wide social classes. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like there's like maybe yeah. there's some criteria that, you know, you can accept it or not, but at least it's something more than this is just when we begin to study the thing. I do think that um, fashion historians who subscribe to this model from Western Europe do think that um, the rate of change has to be seasonal. Um, and season is quite fast in our world. I, I don't think they think that there um, are, you know, six to eight fashion seasons a year, but I um, uh. <laughs> also think <laughs> that um, there has to be a system of someone literally buying fashions. Uh, and someone designing them. And I think that's very hard to see in the Byzantine world. We don't know of any designers, um, but we do have records, you know, in Paris in 1400 of elite tailors who would be called upon to make clothes for the court. So it's not that it's not there, but we have to do a little speculation here about that. That's a good point. The fashion designer, like mm -hmm. I'm drawing a blank right now. I don't know. Maybe if, if I go back and look, I, you know, you might find something, but you're right. Nothing, uh, nothing fits that category. But, but I think that there were individuals who had, maybe they weren't designing the clothes themselves, but there were certainly individuals who had influence on the development of fashion and I'm blanking on on his name but there was a in Islamic Spain there was a, a courtier from Baghdad who went to Spain and is recorded in the textual sources is bringing textiles with him fashionable textiles and that he's this kind of fashion maven uh in Spain and like Umayyad Spain right so so I think that the role of individuals is really important to sort of sort through and, and who brought along fashion, um, maybe not necessarily designers, but, but influential influencers of the Byzantine world. Yeah, um, people, yeah. Debate, people debate whether, right, Theophano going to the Atonian court, how much style mm -hmm. uh, she brought with her, essentially, that influenced locals. Um, and we certainly see influence of people coming from other parts of the empire to uh, the capital. 
and bringing styles with them like caftans and turbans coming from further east. So, Yeah, so you both mentioned cases of individuals traveling and either bringing uh, new styles with them uh, or, you know, commenting on regional differences of style. Um, so how, so were there foreign fashions in Byzantium? And, 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 and by that, I mean, um, fashions that were self-consciously understood to be foreign rather than just something that happens to enter the culture and becomes part of the mainstream without, you know, people really noticing and, you know, we might classify those things as foreign, but we would be wrong if the people wearing them don't think of them that way. Um, I, I think that's an important distinction, and not just for fashion, but for all kinds of things, you know, the textual things, practices, social practices, institutions, and so on. But was there a self-conscious awareness of foreign clothing or jewelry and a self-conscious adaptation of those things? Or where, where can we see that? I was just going to say that I think that we can uh, clearly see when we have foreign-born women who are marrying into the imperial family and they mm. wear some items of dress that um, are new and have a different form, particularly like these grand wide sleeves um, that are coming um, from Italy and France, that that is certainly an example. Earlier in the conversation, I mentioned uh, the Cairo Geniza and the documents that are in the Cairo Geniza. Mm -hmm. And um, they're extremely useful to us today because they're lists of household furnishings and, and, and dress items that give value. So they'll, they'll name, it basically says one bracelet, two anklets, five bedrobes, um, and so on. And gives a value. And what's really incredible about these documents is that they tell you their date. They tell you who, you know, as marriage documents, they're naming the bride and the groom. And when we look at the lists of textiles and jewelry in these documents, many of them are foreign words that are imported um, in this Judeo-Arabic. So that's giving you this, again, this snapshot mm. of Cairo in the 11th century, what a household, a very wealthy household might've had. And so it'll say things like a Sicilian robe or um, a bracelet that's using a word borrowed from Ethiopia, you know, um, from Ethiopian. So it doesn't mean that those things were imported from those places. What it means is that at some point, certain styles had associations with other places, right? And yes. so, so this, I think, is really fascinating because especially with this group of documents, um, these were people who are living in Fatimid Cairo with objects associated with all over the Mediterranean and beyond. The documents in the same trove name trade routes that are going through to India, that are going into the Black Sea area, right? So we have this sense of connectivity in a way that... Um, we don't often, we can't often reconstruct. So this is for me, very valuable documents for understanding uh, this issue of foreignness and flow uh, around the Mediterranean and Eurasia in, uh, in the 11th, 12th century, particularly. Yeah, so you bring up an excellent point, which is the converse of what I said. So I mentioned 
you know, foreign things that are self-consciously understood to be foreign. But so there's also the possibility, and you're exactly right, that there are things to which a foreign origin was attributed, though they didn't have it, right? And, and I'm, so I'm thinking of ethnic foods in the U.S. here, right, where we label all these you know, Mexican and Chinese and so on, which are just complete American inventions for the most part. And now even if you go into a Greek restaurant in the U.S., the Greek salad has lettuce in it. Like that's not a Greek thing, but Americans expect lettuce in a salad. And so you just dump all that. So it's one of those things that's sort of ethnicized, even if it's not exactly foreign. Um, and I, I can easily believe that the, in fact, I think I know of some cases where, you know, Romans and Byzantines label things foreign that aren't. And there's a question of why they're doing that, but that's, a, that's another thing. Um, so is Constantinople a center and disseminator of fashion. Um, and I mean by that to the provinces, but also to you know, foreign people outside. Uh, so to what degree can we track that? Or is that true? I mean, I, I, Betsy, you mentioned earlier that sometimes fashions move from the provinces to Constantinople. Is there any way that we can track or measure the degree to which the capital was a, you know, the Milan of the <laughs> Middle Ages or whatever? Um, I can jump in here. I think that it is, first of all, important to see that where fashions are coming from and how clothing is actually made is through this network that is scattered around the empire. So we have cloth, you know, coming across the Silk Road, but we also have um, cloth made locally in Constantinople, but also other places. We have dye networks, um, workshops set up around the Mediterranean and so on, right? Linen probably mostly coming from Egypt. So I think because of that, it's a very um, diffuse system and it's hard to privilege one place over mm -hmm. another. We know that one of the biggest uh, markets in, uh, in the Byzantine Empire was in Thessaloniki, um, you know, this annual thing, not in Constantinople. So um, lots of comments by travelers about the way that the Byzantines dress and their spectacle of their um, ceremonies. So, of course, that must have influenced people, but I think it's a very complex um, situation and we can't uh, just say that it went one direction or another, you know, that we have to see that there it's coming from all directions. You know, I think uh, for jewelry, it's interesting. The scholarship always assumed that finished products moved so that Something would be made in Constantinople that it would travel out uh, to Spain or Europe or the Middle East or to North Africa and be replicated there. But I think that that I, I always struggled with that as a model because I thought to myself, why would you transport highly finished jewelry long distances at all? That doesn't really line up to my mind with what we know from the textual sources, which is the, the, the movement of raw materials, right? So 
I've been thinking a lot about how the maybe the craftspeople themselves moved, that we don't talk enough about how the goldsmiths were mobile and moving around, or the textile workers were mobile and moving around and setting up industries in different places. So that's something where, um, and when I look at, you know, speaking of uh, the Renaissance uh, evidence that helps us kind of gaze backwards somehow, sometimes thinking about accounts of goldsmiths in Renaissance Italy, that they were itinerant, they were moving around and they were um, bringing their knowledge with them. So I think that it's, it's helpful also to think about the way that craft knowledge and maybe fashion traveled, not just with high status individuals, but also with the people who actually made, right. uh, made the garments, made the jewelry, and, and that that was part of this, this flow. Yeah. I seem to think that that approach is more common in like, uh, you know, studies of the bronze age, um, mm-hmm. or the iron age later on, because we it's, you know, those cultures are not, um, well, especially in the iron age, like first millennium BC, not so oriented around a court that we naturally tend to think of, you know, everything's coming out of Constantinople because of the the court just sort of dominates everything, right? But it's, you know, there's a whole economy independent uh, of that. And and so I think that those kinds of assumptions come more naturally. Um, All right, so I wanna close with a double question for both of you. Um, And so, and here it is. So first, can each of you tell me sort of one, item of you know Byzantine clothing or jewelry or whatever that that fascinates you because it's strange or misunderstood or intimate or you know whatever and secondly what um if you could magically be given an answer to a question about Byzantine dress uh what question would that be or what would you want to know that we either don't know or can't know but that you would you really want to know uh, and it doesn't have to be something profound it's a great question my favorite piece of byzantine apparel accessory uh is this ring a signet ring that we have at dumbarton oaks that names its owner its owner is amaria patricia and i love this object because we tend to associate signet rings with men and the kind of authority of office. And this is an object that really makes us reconsider gender and jewelry and to think about how these objects might've been used and how women Mm -hmm. uh, might've been using these objects. And it's especially meaningful to me in conversation with my colleague, uh, Jonathan Shea here at Dumbarton Oaks because there aren't that many seals naming women. So in fact, this is an object that uh, there are a few Maria Patricias in the seals. Mm-hmm. So I keep thinking that maybe one of those is the woman associated with this, the signet ring. So this is an object that is just very powerful to me uh, because it it forces me to rethink how I, it, position, it makes me position myself today vis-a-vis the materials then. Um, and as for a question, I would I would love to know more of what kind of jewelry did eunuchs wear? Oh. You know, thinking about gender, thinking about um, how we gen- how we today gender jewelry. I've I've long had it in my mind that there must be eunuch jewelry out there, but how would we even know to identify it without imposing today's gender conceptions on the past? 
Right. And it must have been fabulous. It must have been, you know, we know about their silks and we know about their clothes and, and, you know, speaking of the angelic beings, like thinking about that, these, um, these kind of models for what eunuch jewelry might have looked like. Yeah. And how it might have shaped, you know, broader assumptions about uh, gender and jewelry um, just by what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Jen? I love that question. Uh, let's see. <laughs> um, so I think like everyone else, I am sucked in by Imperial Insignia, Insignia and I would really like to um, get a, even, I don't know, I would like to wear a Loros or something or know uh, a little more about it. Um, which is the heavy imperial stole that we mentioned earlier. Um, I think I'm fascinated by it because it is one of the gar only garments that we can clearly see is exactly the same, whether worn by the emperor or the empress. Mm -hmm. And I, I also am really... Um, kind of mystified by the idea of how heavy it must have been to wear. Um, and we know it was hardly ever worn and it must be because it was so difficult. Um, like wearing the lead vest at the dentist, you know, and walking <laughs> in the grade with it or something. Um, and in terms of a question I want to answer, I really want to know uh, whether the Byzantines really wore underwear or not, because we don't really know. Don't know. We have some references to loincloths. Uh, I know there was an archaeological find uh, in, I think, uh, in Austria of a 14th century bra, um, but we don't really know. Right. Um. Yeah, I thought I, that was an open question. I, I haven't been able to find a straight answer <laughs> about that one. Um, also about the women in veils, in whatever mm -hmm. way, like the evidence is so contradictory. And, you know, did they, didn't they? Some did, some didn't. Sometimes they did. it's really odd. Uh, but anyway, I, so I think with those questions, a great place to end. Um, we're right on time. So thank you both for this. This is a very illuminating kind of dialectic between your sort of areas of expertise that sort of overlap in a very interesting way. And, and I hope that, you know, new phase of Byzantine studies, we're going to have more, um, <clears throat> more studies of Byzantine dress and Julia, and that they will be more integrated into the rest of what we write about that society um, and, you know, not keep it so specialized. But uh, anyway, so thank you both, Jen, Betsy, pleasure to have you. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you. Thank you.